and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, I can't find the stationery. Can you help me look? I, I genuinely thought you were going to go with like a teachers on sabbatical kind of joke at the start here. Uh, I live to surprise. You do, and you have. Um, and we've just alluded to what we're talking about this week, but we have a very special guest to introduce first, who's having a bit of a celebration today. Uh, and I think on this day of celebration, marking 10 years of his channel, um, frankly, one of the nicest blokes you'll find online, one of the nicest blokes in the Bond fandom. Um, I'm glad to have met him in real life as well, but uh, the the creator of the Bond experience, Mr. David Zaritsky, how are you, sir? I am doing great. Happy to be here, gents. Thanks for inviting me. I, I mean, we, I think you uh, spoke to us ages ago and you, you mentioned Quantum, but we knew it was so far in the distance. We were like, okay, we're going to have to wait now. We could have had you on for like the last year, but no, we're waiting for Quantum, which I kind of given away the film there. But uh, yeah, but you're here now. And I'm excited. I get, look, let's start with this. I am a fan of what you guys do. I don't miss what you do. I enjoy what you do, but there was a craving, right? I mean, like a sweet tooth for mm -hmm. quantum. And I'm, I, I, I reached out, I'll, I'll, I'll say it proudly. I reached out to you and I said, if you need a poster child slash punching bag, <laughs> I'm your man. So this week we are calling the podcast Quantum Hearts. So. <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah. Are we? I didn't sign off on that. <laughs> um, but let's, let's dial it back just a smidge. For those of uh, the few people in the world who don't know who you are, David, uh, and don't know about your channel, um, as I said, it's celebrating for as far as I know the sort of 10 year anniversary, really more or less at the moment. So congratulations, sir. That's Thank quite you. the achievement. Thanks so much. Yeah, the channel is uh, its such a cornucopia of things, but you know, it definitely has a lean to the sartorial, the brands, the lifestyle of James Bond. I mean, that's how I got interested to begin with sort of the style and fashion the cool of Bond, if you will, which I'm sure we'll talk about in regard to this movie. It's transformed over time to include everything from book clubs to locations to vehicles to interviewing some of the celebrities uh, to going on locations and pretty much everything in between, even discussions like this, not so much debates, but hearty, robust discussions about the movies. So it's been fun. And, and I, I love doing exactly what we're doing today, which is to include other members of the Bond community. It's more fun that way. I think discussion is the best way for everyone. And it helps you grow different viewpoints and just keep the positivity up. That's what we try to do here. And it's what you do on the Bond experience. So you coming here is the perfect synergy in my book. Thank you. Great to be here. Um, but, you know, so... I suppose then you, you sort of spoke about it just a little bit before, the sort of sartorial side of Bond and that's sort of what you're going for. But for those who've never been on your channel on YouTube, there'll be a link in the show notes below. But just tell us a little bit about it and sort of why it got started. So it has its pretty humble beginnings. Um, it started in earnest when I had a few pieces from the film, uh, mostly since we're doing a 10-year anniversary now, Skyfall, Billy Reed Peacoat. I received this Peacoat. I think I was the first one off the line in the Bond community to get it. And I was heading to London for the premiere of the movie. And I thought to myself, I wonder if anybody in the world would be interested in me doing a, a vlog, which is what we called them at the time. And, mm -hmm. you know, everything on YouTube was relatively new back then. But I did. I put something together where I traveled around London talking about the Peacoat, 
probably acting the fool, looking at a camera and a piece of technology. And I had a tremendous amount of fun doing it. So I released this relatively humble video thinking, all right, you know what, if my mom watches it, job well done. And Billy Reed, the company wound up selling, I think it was 850 coats within a month. And the video sort of sprang from there. And, and, and since then, we've done frugal bonds where, you know, people that don't have a lot to invest can still get the look and feel because it's not about, it's about inclusivity, not exclusivity in how you capture the bond style. A, a moment of drinking cheap vodka on a Friday night is the bond style. So for anybody that's craving that bond style or that escapism, which I think the bond franchise does so well, my YouTube channel has been... I don't want to call it a haven, but certainly an escape valve for a lot of people. And that's like a really great concept, too, for, you know, a YouTube channel, because I think a lot of Bond fans, when they start out getting really into it, they go to, like, say, the 007 store, their hair goes instantly white, and they go, I, I can't, I can't pursue fandom in this way. Yeah, that's a great point. So I'll kind of dispel a myth. Um, I'm on a, not on anybody's payroll, including brands and eons. And I have no official capacity other than the brands, they're smart. They understand that this has a wide audience to it. Um, and so they give me privy to these things. But they also know that they can't tell me what to say. So in most of my videos, I will say what I like. I'll also say what I don't like, like what we're about to get into this film. This film to me, although I like it, spoiler alert, um, it's not 100% for me. I do the same thing with the brands. I just did a video on a Connie release where they had a $140 t-shirt and I couldn't get behind it. But something else that they did, I really got behind. So you try to have that that balancing act. I'll always remember the, uh, I think it was the Dr. No, all the Bar Brown shorts I saw in the uh, the, the Bond um uh, the movement of Bond, or the, the car show they did, they're still traveling around. I can't remember what it's called now. Bond uh, in Motion. The uh, Bond Emotion, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I was like, oh, that's a that's a pretty penny. Oh, that's interesting. But uh, I would have liked to have Dr. No on my shorts, so you know, I could see why people would go down that way. And apart from, obviously, Bond is the thing you do on your channel, and you do it very well. And I, I, mean, I it's actually you and Calvin Dyson are the two I look to as kind of the, the people on YouTube that uh, my voice is with Bond. Like, I, I resonate with what you both say. Even though you come down different films differently, which I actually quite like as well. Um, but I suppose it's spinning off of Bond ever so slightly. Spy movies is what we talk about. And I know you're a fan of spy movies. The question I have for you, and every person that's been on this show, guests to directors, John Glenn, Jacqueline Bissett, everyone's had the same question. David, what is your favorite spy movie? It would have to be, including Bond, I assume. Of course. Yeah, I would have to say it's Casino Royale. It's the one that, you know, we, we sometimes play a game, friends, when we're drinking too much. If the devil came and take you and, and brought you to hell, if you believe in that, uh, and he made you watch one movie, one spy movie, what's the one that you could see on repeat? And it's Casino Royale. It has everything for me. It has romance, intrigue, um, badass bond, which I look for. It has heroic moments. It has uh, an ending that I find very satisfying. A good bad guy, all the different tropes that I love. So I'm in. I am curious, when you initially got into Bond, what was the first Bond movie that really grabbed you and made you a fan? I had a catapult moment. So I have to explain what that is. Um, 
the very first Bond movie that I was ever taken to sort of made me a fan. I remember I was very young. It was the beginning of The Spy Who Loved Me when it premiered. It was a rainy day in Atlantic City, New Jersey, where we couldn't go to the beach, the beach town. And my father said, we're going to take you to this movie. He didn't tell me what it was. And I just remember sharks and a guy with metal teeth and this really cool guy. And he bought me a Corgi car directly afterwards, which kind of extended the Bond fandom. And then as a young person, I was really into it. I didn't really get fanatical, which I think there is a differential. I mean, we're fanatical here for what we're doing. Until I was 32 years old and I was a young executive. And I remember Tomorrow Never Dies. And Pierce Brosnan to me was like the guy to emulate. Good looking, suave, wore his clothes, had the right thing to say. That's the guy I'm going to pattern my coolness. And your, your listeners can't see this. So that was really effective. I made rabbit ears, everybody. <laughs> but um, that got me really fanatical about where I started collecting the clothes and even taking certain patterns of bond and trying to invisibly insert them into my life. Right. And I think it's really interesting, though, you cite um, Casino Royale as being your favorite. Because for, like, for a lot of Bond fans, they're drawn more to kind of what was the popular Bond of the time they kind of discovered it. Like for me, I tend to fall back on, say, like The Spy Who Loved Me because I was a Roger Moore kid. So I really think that's interesting that for you, it's like Casino Royale, that reinvention is what really kind of reigns over them all for you. Yeah, and I think Roger Moore was mine. So we have that in common. Roger Moore for me is gooey cheese pizza and beer. And Casino Royale is a refined gourmet meal. So if you're if you're saying what are the ones, you know, when I go out with my wife to a nice meal that we've kind of planned out a week in advance, it's something very special. Gooey pizza, you know, you have that regret. It's like, oh my God, all that gluten and cheese just sitting in your stomach. But it's still fun and I wouldn't give it up for anything. For sure. Yeah, I mean, my first uh, Bond movie I ever saw was View to a Kill. So <laughs> it's hard to hold that one up Ooh. as your all-time favorite. <laughs> yeah, show me on the puppet where they hurt you. Mm. Yikes. <laughs> it worked though, it worked. <laughs> We are here. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. I think we, we've set it up beautifully. David, your best, your favorite spy film is Casino Royale. So why don't we talk about its sequel? What do you think, Cam? I think that's a good idea because, yeah, this week we are going to tackle 2008's Quantum of Solace, directed by Mark Forster. So <clears throat> it's interesting because we had Casino Royale a couple of months ago. And obviously, we set it up at the start, David. You reached out about this film. This is a film that you champion in certain ways, and we're going to get into that in a second. But first, I kind of want to hear what everyone's original experience with this film was back in 2008, because I can guarantee you all of us saw it when it came out. So, that David, I'll go to you first. When you first saw the picture, was it a press screening, or was it just you know in the theaters with everyone else? What did you think of the film? So I was actually invited to the United States premiere to actually display props, gadgets, and wardrobe from my collection for the film. So this is a this is a bad cheat because I went into it, they let me set up, you know, they wined and dined me, uh, gave us premiere tickets in any row that we wanted, champagne, free champagne all night, et cetera, for me displaying this. And I was able to invite friends and my wife, et cetera. So even before the film lit up the screen, I was higher than a kite. So I, I'm not as saying that they would have like a crap emoji and I'd be like, that's the best film ever. But I was going into it with really warm thoughts. Was that kind of your, it may not have been, but was that kind of your first foray as you built your collection and in, in sort of, 
I don't know, Eon sort of noticed you and sort of uh, and gave you sort of credit for that? Or was there a, a was Casino Royale sort of that thing too? Yeah, important, important to note, um, Eon really doesn't do anything to reach out to anybody like this. This was um, actually the charity society that was putting on. So Cubby Broccoli has a cardiovascular wing of Robert Wood Johnson. It's Robert Wood Johnson reached out to me because I had done some things for them for Casino Royale. So they were like, hey, how, do you want to take what you did last time, which is something small, and just blow it up on a bigger scale? I mean, you, I, we didn't really talk about it at the start, but you've got a wonderful collection of Bond props. And you've got a video on your channel, I think a couple now, where you've sort of gone through it. And it, I, I'm envious to, uh, to no end, but, uh, you, you, you know, wonderful stuff. But I'll, I'll throw it to you, Cam. What did you think? So I remember how much anticipation I had for Quantum of Solace. Probably one of my most anticipated Bond movies of my lifetime. I think Tomorrow Never Dies was a big deal as well. But this one, I was at this point in my life writing for my university paper, The Peak, as it was known, uh, from Simon Fraser University here in Vancouver, BC, or Burnaby, I, I suppose. Um, and I remember leading up to the movie, they were trying desperately to get me an interview with Mark Forster. And so... That would have been, at the time, I think my first ever interview. So I was very terrified it would actually happen. So it did not wind up being the case. But they did get me into the, uh, you know, the early advanced screening of the movie. I remember taking my sister to it. And I was going to review it. And I remember being really crestfallen after the movie. Which was not what I expected at all. Because Casino had ended similar to, say, Batman Begins, you know, in 2005. Where it was like... The sky is the limit. I cannot wait to see what they deliver. And I remember being disappointed. Not hugely so, but kind of taken aback a little. And I have my review up. I can read a little bit of a quote here from 2008 Cam. Let's hop in the time machine. If only Forster and company had taken a lesson from Royale Helmer, Martin Campbell, and allowed the action and story to speak through the characters. For sure, Quantum of Solace is a casually engaging, if disappointing, vehicle, but it lacks the light touch, which confidently eased along the best of Bond's 21 previous adventures. In molding Bond into a born-again, born-again action hero, uh. <laughs> they've lost the joyous exhilaration and witty humor which has kept 007 vibrant since 1962. Hopefully, Quantum's faults will remind producers once again that Bond fans generally prefer being stirred to shaken. Now, my opinion on the movie has changed over time, but in 2008, that was sort of my sense. And that's one-time watch. So again, my relationship with the movie has changed, but I did walk out a little bummed. I gave it a 2.5 out of 5. So I wasn't like angry. I was just kind of like, oh, oh. Kind of okay. middle of the road. Just, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, um, I always like hearing the Cam's adventures when he was doing reviews for the newspaper. They're always fun to hear. So thank you for bringing that back, Cam. You're welcome. <laughs> Um, I was, I mean, I was so far out of the, the Bond world at this point. Casino Royale, I mean, Die Another Day let me down. Casino Royale, I didn't really, I don't think I caught in the theaters. I was like so bitter about it. And I came back, I think I watched it on home release. And I was like, oh, well, this is a film to talk about. And so when Quantum was coming out, and I was really into sort of the white stripes. And so the, the song was really sort of striking a chord with me. Pardon the pun. Oh, a chord. <laughs> It's like yeah. born again all over again. Oh, uh, we're really working on this. Um, I, I, I remember going just being like, oh, okay. Mm. I wasn't offended or anything like that. There's, people are quite vociferous about it online sometimes. That's post the film, of course. But uh, at the time, I just thought, okay, that was a sequel. Moving on. 
Um, but for those of you somehow who have never actually seen Quantum of Solace and are still listening to this episode, here is your letterbox.com synopsis. It's a long one, which is strange for the shortest ever Bond film. <laughs> Quantum of Solace. For love, for hate, for justice, for revenge. Was that the tagline? Yeah. Wow, okay. Or, or one of them, at least, anyway. Sure. Quantum of Solace continues the adventures of James Bond after Casino Royale. Betrayed by Vesper, the woman he loved, 007 fights the urge to make his latest mission personal. Pursuing his determination to uncover the truth, Bond and M interrogate Mr. White, who reveals that the organization that blackmailed Vesper is far more complex and dangerous than anyone had imagined. Hmm. Interesting. Striking. That's actually quite like, yeah, get a little, yeah. ooh, kind of want to watch this film. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> When's this film turning up? Okay, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, fine. Um, yeah, I, I, I like the synopsis. It's interesting, though, like, uh, David, you didn't, you said that you kind of got a good setup, but I don't know if I actually heard what you thought about the film at the time. Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, so, like you, Cam, it's, grower, not a shower to me, as far as when I first walked out, and I remember this so distinctly, what happens is, and I don't know, Cam, if you were with a group of people, I was. And so everybody gets talking. So you you take on a little bit of what everybody else thinks, and you emulsify that with what you did. I really liked it, but I thought that there were issues. Like I had more of an issue with the editing back then when I first saw it than I actually do now, because now I've grappled with the fact that They've consciously made a move to make this a more emotional and visceral bond. I mean, he's after revenge. It's revenge until he understands that revenge isn't going to serve the ultimate purpose. So if that's the case, then the editing itself has to be visceral. But I still, I know it's a technique, but even back then I said, you know something? And I remember this, I said, they, they kind of went the Batman route of some of the Batman movies having action that's too close, or the Liam Neeson ones, where he can't do action, so they come in really close on the action. And I can't take that. I want the full vista of being a third party. I don't need to be a part of the fights. I want to be sitting omnisciently over the fighting. And I remember coming away with that. I hated the song. On first listening and on one millionth listening. That has not changed. It's grating. It's like Oh, no. No, thank you. Should we duet this? No, I'll be the one who really likes it. And then, uh, <laughs> wait. You could do like dueling banjos. And yeah, oh, sure. Yeah, yeah I've, I've got a banjo. I could play it. It's fine. Um, well, so, so you were kind of mixed on it coming out of it then? I was definitely more mixed than I am now. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Like it's solidified over the years. That's, that's yeah, because yeah. there were things that I could absolutely gravitate to. Like, first of all, style clothing. Um, was this a badass version of Bond that I look for where he's a violent, disturbed anti-hero? Absolutely. Um, but a part of me was, do I really love the story where they're kind of slow parts like the airplane scene? Was that too slow? Was it necessary? Are they trying for everything? So I had more questions back then than answers. Yeah, I, I should note actually my sister though when I because I saw it with her and she really enjoyed it and to this day we'll fly the flag for Quantum. So Dave, you are not alone in the trenches for supporting this movie. It's grown throughout mm -hmm. the whole Bond community. It's almost like the Timothy Dalton era, 
yeah. um, or the George Lazenby for that matter, you know, when it first came out. And I find that this may not, we're probably jumping to the end, but I think Brosnan, some of his films may have a renaissance of sorts. People are already talking about that. But this film, I don't know if it's that it's an underdog and people love an underdog story or they've watched it enough and came away with something more akin to gravitas as opposed to gravity. Well, I, I think before we get to how we feel about it now and our solidified thoughts a bit more, Cam, I want to know, how did we get our quantum of solace? Oh boy, this is one that I would love, you know, maybe like 10, 15 years, 20 years down the road to have like the definitive book written about the production of quantum because like some of the other Bond films, it was a very messy uh, production just because of time. This was a movie that initially they wanted to like fast track to have in theaters for 2007. So like they were going to speed this thing through. Seven? Yeah. Yeah. Wow, okay. It's a real, like, Dr. No into From Russia with Love kind of scenario. Like, they really wanted to build off the heat of Casino, uh, Casino Royale. But obviously that didn't wind up happening. Um, so basically the genesis of the, this was that Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, the, uh, you know, writers who've been with the franchise for quite a while now, they co-wrote Casino Royale. And during that film, they realized they would need two films to wrap up the arc of James Bond. And so they began to develop what would be the follow-up. They brought in uh, director Roger Mitchell, um, who had uh, most famously, I think, directed Notting Hill and um, had worked with Craig a couple times on movies called Enduring Love and The Mother. And um, at this point, they had a 2007 script that they put together. And here's the, how they described it. A complex and emotionally powerful plot about Bond going in search of Vesper's boyfriend who was embroiled in a multi-layered charade involving stolen antiquities, arms dealing, precious metals, nerve gas, the CIA, and a mysterious organization similar to Spectre. Which, I think maybe two elements of that made it to the finished film. Yeah, I was trying to pick that apart. Some of the, there is, and there's, there's some connective tissue there, definitely. The CIA and uh, the Spectre-like organization, because they didn't have the rights to Spectre at this point in time, th those two things wound up continuing forward. And sort of the emotional arc of Bond carrying forward. I think mm -hmm. this, this definitely does mm -hmm. that too. Yeah, and at the time, they really wanted to have very close links to Casino Royale and very much saw it as a direct sequel. They even wanted to work in flashbacks to Vesper and bring back Eva Green for scenes that would be worked into the movie. Yeah, This obviously was not the case, and um, uh, Roger Mitchell bailed a little bit uh, after this draft was released or was handed in. And then the release date was pushed back because they realized they couldn't have this movie in theaters for 2007. And they briefly brought in Ted Griffin, who had uh, worked on the first Ocean's Eleven movie that Steven Soderbergh did. That was very fleeting. You can find it mentioned in a deadline report. But other than that, it doesn't seem like he contributed a heck of a lot. But they then brought in Paul Haggis, who had co-written Casino Royale um, for 2006. And he was initially very reluctant to come back. He was happy with his work on Casino, but kind of didn't know if he had that much to say. And he actually turned down the director spot because Martin Campbell was not interested in coming back. Paul Haggis had won, you know, an Oscar for Crash. He'd, um, you know, written that film and also directed Crash. So he was a pretty big name at this point in time, but he was not interested in directing. So then they were looking at people like uh, Tony Scott, uh, Jonathan Mostow, who had done Terminator 3 and Breakdown. They looked at Alex Proyas, who'd done um, Dark City and The Crow. But they ultimately went with Mark Forster, who was a German-born director. 
Um, he broke through with his third movie, Monster's Ball, which won Halle Berry the Oscar, which he collected while shooting Die Another Day. And he'd gone on to do a number of respected movies like Finding Neverland, Stranger Than Fiction, um, The Kite Runner. And that led right into this movie. And he kind of had to be a little bit persuaded to do it. He was not a Bond fan, but he did really like Casino Royale. And so he was like, okay, I can definitely see how I could make something I would enjoy. And he also wanted to um, kind of draw inspiration from the 60s, 70s thrillers that he was more into maybe than Bond. So probably things like Three Days of the Condor, for example. Oh, I thought you meant like, you know, Bronson films, that sort of stuff. Possible. He didn't cite them by name, so you never know, right? You know, there's a, there's an interesting story, which I reasonably believe, that says it's almost good that there was a writer's strike for somebody like Mark Forrester to direct because he is more about emotion and individuals and characters and not really about the big vistas and action, et cetera. So because this is an angry, visceral, emotional, violent bond, he could have more of a play thing with it. Uh, and, and I think you, you find that in the movie itself. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, for sure. And so uh, Forrester was working with Haggis and they had a looming writer's strike. And basically they um, worked in things like they focused more on the villain plot, the whole Bolivian water aspect. They pushed it away from Vesper. They made that less of an element of the story and, uh, and pretty much cut most of the Casino Royale ties. It's one thing I really noticed going back and forth is that different people working on the movie had very different visions of what it was like a direct sequel to casino rail or not like mark forster saw it very much as a standalone movie whereas other people were like this is clearly continuing the arc of casino royale so that seems to be a certain element paul haggis handed in his final draft right at the end of october and within a few hours on november 1st the writer's strike kicked in and so on the set for this movie they didn't have you know a wga writer to actually work on the movie. So a lot of this was handled by uh, Daniel Craig and uh, Mark Forster, basically rewriting on the fly. Um, the draft that Haggis had done initially had the title Sleep of the Dead, which had brought in elements like Camille. But there were certain things that were rewritten after he left. Like his original ending involved Bond finding that Vesper had a child who'd been put in an orphanage by her boyfriend. And he leaves the money for the child and walks away at the end of the film. And elements like this, Mark Forrester was like, no, 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 no. So, th yeah, there's a lot of rewriting on the fly. It, it actually just baffles me more that, that they were able to put a film together with those sorts of constraints. Because we, we've had plenty of interviews with screenwriters on the show at this point, And they're always saying that they're on set and they'll just get a little request to punch up a line, something like that. But you, if you've not got anyone to is legally allowed to do that because of union rules... How do you work that? You just sort of say, oh, I guess I'll say this. Okay, I guess I'll shoot it. And then it gets shot. Is that how it works? It's funny too, because um, I, I just saw Daniel Craig live with Stephen Colbert. And a part of that discussion, he hints at Quantum of Solace when he says that nowadays he loves Ryan Johnson's of the world who give them all an upfront script and it's a complete <laughs> script. And it's not something he needs to work on because he's shite as far as a, a writer is concerned. <laughs> I mean, I think there's even little digs in, in the latest um, Being James Bond uh, documentary that's out right now, where he actually comes to that. And it's, it's the shortest segment of that entire journey, where they don't pay a lot of attention to this film. Yeah, and it's yeah notable in that documentary that they definitely 
mentioned the writer's strike and the impact on the movie. And yes, Daniel Craig has said like he never wants to ever have to do this again. <laughs> he says he's not a good writer, like he shouldn't be having to do this. Um, but it, it is notable to me in that documentary, they are very quick to underline the flaws of... Um, of um, Quantum, but they really gloss over Spectre, a movie that also had a lot of problems, showing that maybe you need a bit of time before you can kind of admit that there was some issues along the way. Perhaps so, perhaps so. And, you know, I think given that they had no one to punch anything up, the fact that we got a a fully fleshed out, maybe not the plot itself, but the fact that everything ties up beginning to end is actually something to celebrate about this film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And a couple other notes, the original ending of this movie, because um, Mr. White was killed in this film, and that was cut out of the movie, and it would involve the Prime Minister's um, advisor, Guy Haynes, being revealed as a top quantum agent, and the movie would end with Bond meeting him, sort of akin to the Mr. White thing at the end of Casino Royale, and that was all dropped. You know, I have this on my channel, guys, in a video. Um the Mr. White suit that Mr. White wears when he gets killed, I own that suit. The screen used one. Oh my God. Wow. And That's incredible. I've got a great shot because it's Mr. White sitting in this big upholstered chair with a gun pointed at Bond and Bond gets, you know, the draw on him basically and shoots him, which they show in the video game. Right. They actually have that scene in the video game itself. I will try and track that down and post it online for everyone to have a look. It's at on it. YouTube. I, I, you I don't think I've it. seen it. Yeah, I don't think yeah. I've seen that. It's a great what if, but I am happy that uh, Mr. White stuck around to be a, uh, you know, a nagging presence in the future movies, because yeah. I think he worked out great. So he would be everywhere, everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and so a uh, couple just final notes. This movie had the greatest percentage of location work in Bond history. 13 out of 22 weeks uh, were shot in foreign locations outside of the studio. Um, I don't know if they've broken that record since, but it was six countries at the time. And a couple of little uh, post-production notes. They brought in a couple of famous directors to do voiceover. Guillermo del Toro um, voiced the hotel concierge. And Alfonso Cuaron voiced the helicopter pilot at one point in this movie. I did not know any of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were huh. both friends of, uh, of Mark Forster, so they thought it would be fun to have little cameos. Even more richness to the film than I expected. That's right. It's all just tilting it in your favor right now. It's clearly. <laughs> And uh, the budget for this movie was $200 million. Domestically, it did 168.4, international 421.2, for a worldwide total of 589.6, just a little bit less than Casino Royale, which did 616.5. And it was number seven for the year between Madagascar, Escape to Africa, and Iron Man. Wow. What, what a bookend. I yeah, know, that's, right? That's a that's a weird sandwich to bite into right there. <laughs> I don't think history remembers what a juggernaut Madagascar 2 was, considering it beat Iron Man, the launch of the MCU. Was that the one that had, uh, you got to move it, move it. You got to move it, move it. <laughs> I Is think it the... might have been. <laughs> might have been. I didn't think right. we'd have a Madagascar sing-along in this episode, but I'm glad we're here. This yeah, is what right. you get when you invite me on the show. I apologize. <laughs> you just lost a thousand listeners. Uh, that's fine. That's fine. Um, well, it's actually um, worth pointing out. I hadn't mentioned it yet. It's a bit silly of me, but we do have quite a few interviews coming up this week for everyone. Um, you know, first and foremostly, we've got the cinematographer Roberto Schaefer joining us, um, talking all about the film and some of his other work. 
Uh, we've also got uh, Rufus Wright, who stars as the Treasury agent in this film. You'll see him in the scene with all the money and all the all the, all the fascination with that. And we've also joined by Mr. Matt Whitecross, talking about his new documentary, The Sound of 007. And we'll be talking about the music a little bit more in this episode, I, I imagine, <laughs> with this film. <laughs> And perhaps the polarizing sound of uh, Quantum of Solace's lead song, yes. <laughs> and that was a great documentary because it has Jack White really taking the mickey out of himself and out of the yeah. song, too. Mm -hmm. And so the uh, top three for this year, number one was The Dark Knight. Number two was Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls. And number three was Kung Fu Panda. And just the final note I had, when you look at Casino Royale, the BAFTAs really got behind it big time. That was not the case with Quantum. It only walked away with two nominations for Best Sound and Best Special Visual Effects. So, yeah, interesting just like that Quantum was quite polarizing at the time, for sure. It's, it's interesting because you, you see all this sort of discourse online about the film now, but I, I, I got the impression and looking at reviews, it was generally reasonably reviewed. It wasn't like it was vehemently hated like some do now. My memory is, and it may be a little incorrect, I may be mixing it up with perhaps Spectre, but was that early reviews coming out of the UK were actually very good. And it was once it started screening with North American critics, like that Rotten Tomatoes average pulled down to like 60-something percent. That's fair. You know, it's interesting, too, because if I, if I think back to 2006 and 2008, I still think, you know, Casino Royale, certainly people, it surprised them and delighted them. But I still think you had a camp of people that were still straddling the Brosnan era, that was still coming off of Roger Moore, you know, the fun factor. And let's face it, um, and I'll be the first to say this as a defender of Quantum of Solace, Quantum of Solace is one of the darkest films. I mean, it rivals even, you know, License to Kill as far as Bond is brutal. And I do know that some of the editing that you see that people complain about was because the violence had made it an R movie in the first cut. So I think it was closer to, you know, 110, 120 minutes, but it wound up being 96 or 94 because if you notice, for example, when he shoots, you know, one of the uh, policemen, the motorcycle cops, uh, you see a cut where he just hits, you know, the, the wheel of the motorcycle. That's a jump cut that clearly Bonnet shot him in the head. I mean, there were some dark moments letting uh, Mr. Slate bleed out in the hotel room from both the jugular and the artery in his leg. Some dark stuff. So I'm wondering if some American audience just felt a little bit too ooky about that. But nowadays, I think people would embrace it even more. And maybe that's why it's climbed up the ranks. Just a theory. Yeah, like there was a real sweeping romanticism to Casino Royale that I think like, like it or not, it kind of established for what people's expectations were from, from Bond. And I feel like maybe Quantum, at least at the time, there was a sense that it broke that contract and became something else, and they weren't ready for it. And it's one that clearly Bond fans now have had, you know, what, 14 years to sit and rewatch it over and over again and gain a different appreciation. But I do think, like, audiences, maybe in the U.S. particularly, I don't know, or in North America particularly, I don't really know, um, did walk out, I think, of those initial screenings being like, oh, like, that wasn't kind of the highs that I really fell in love with in the previous one. That's a good point. I wonder if they were all expecting Casino Royale Part 2. And what they really got was Casino Royale Point 5, which yeah. was a continuation. If, if Bond lost all his romanticism, you know, a, a bad guy that was a little bit closer to reality, if it was more of a, 
you know, let's face it, it's probably one of the best explorations of the character himself as a spy assassin with a capital A, then it's different than Casino Royale. It absolutely is. And, you know, I think it's, uh, we've spoken about the behind the scenes enough. David, you've come here to champion oh. this film. <laughs> you, you are its fan. It's, I, I use the singular instead of the plural. Um, <laughs> That's awful. I'm I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Of course, but, yeah, we really should we really should find a better place to meet. But we're here, so I'm going to ask you, David. Now, in the year 2022, what do you think about Quantum of Solace? Well, Tusk is not for everyone. Sorry, um, <laughs> I thought we were just doing quotes for the rest of the episode. Imagine. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah, keep going. it's better than me singing Madagascar tunes. Uh, I love this film more than ever. And I love it every year more and more. And I'll tell you why. I have a handful of very strange Bond films that are my, as I was saying before, escape valve. If I want something, you know, Casino Royale to me is like that gourmet meal. It's an event. You know, I, I have to sit down. I have to concentrate. I put my phone. I turn it off. You know, everybody around me has to be concentrating on the screen. Quantum of Solace is different. I can jump in and out of that because it's this comfortable, warm, whoopee of a blanket that I can just curl up with and enjoy. I know what's coming, but I can still enjoy a man who is clearly nothing like me. He says the right things. And by the way, I think this actually, if you watch it again with open ears, not just open eyes, you'll hear the humor. And the humor resonates so much and it's so profound because everything else is so dark. And it's beautifully shot. And, and to me, it's this symphony this opera like it is directly in the movie of all the right things that i look for in a bond film and i i know people quip and talk about the editing i give them the editing but even that now that i'm clear on what's happening in that opening car scene i'm like holy cow a piece of the truck went into the door and then ripped the door off that's unbelievable do i wish they added a couple frames for my slow brain to catch up hells to the yes but nowadays it almost seems like my brain fills in those moments. And now it's a 120-minute film when I watch it. It's not a 94-minute film, if that makes any sense. Well, that does make sense, yeah. It's, it's interesting that you, know, you, you talk about how it's, it's grown on you and how you can sort of jump in and out of it. I, I think it's – and also that action scene at the start, how you'd like a few more frames. I, one of the things that's in my list of likes that we'll get to are things that we all like is that opener i think it's a fantastic bond set piece it as it's full-on adrenaline for the first five minutes of the film and you think about some of the best films the best bond films in history have amazing openers spy who loved me knocks it out the park casino royale knocks it out the park from the second you go roger's skiing down them slopes and then you get the union jack flag that's a hell of an opener right there folks maybe maybe a bit faster than the other one there one's a bit slower <laughs> but I totally get what you're saying. I'm totally on board with you there, David. Well, that opener, the way it kicks in, it almost looks like a car commercial. Like, it's really beautifully shot. And then the second you get that big vroom, it's like just basically kicking off that entire sequence. And in essence, the movie, which wants to be very propulsive as well. Well, throwing to you, Cam, um, when you watch this film, do you want to drink a can of motor oil? Or uh, <laughs> are you more on board? No, I cover myself in the motor oil <laughs> for ah, every viewing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, for me, this 
is a movie that I have come to appreciate much more with the years. I think part of it was, weirdly, Bond is a big screen franchise, right? Like, we all like to go to the theaters to see the new Bond movies. I think this movie actually plays better at home because I do remember the experience of trying to follow that action on the big screen and being completely bewildered by what I was even looking at. And I have found when I watch it at home, I do have serious issues with the editing, but I find it doesn't overwhelm me the same way it did seeing it on the big screen. So we'll talk, I'm sure, more about you know the action scenes and what have you later on. But for me, this is a movie that works in lurches. As an overall story, I have issues with it. You can definitely feel the connecting of breadcrumbs that was going on. A lot of actors talking through what's leading them to the next moment because with a writer's strike movie, this was common. There was a number of movies that came out of this period. Some good, like Star Trek 2009, and then some like Transformers 2 where you're just like, I'm having a hallucination in the movie theater and I don't know what's going on. Um, Quantum kind of for me is somewhere in between. Like it still is propulsive and carries me along. But there's, you know, certainly elements where I go, wait, how, how did we get from there to here? There's a lot of coincidences going on. What I think really stands out for this movie, though, for me, and why I've come to appreciate it is that I think visually, this is one of the best looking Bond movies ever. And the cinematography, which we talk more about, you know, with the man behind it um, in the interview that will be out, I think, next week, um, that visual style of this movie is really almost unparalleled at this point in the franchise. There is so much clever stuff going on with the color palette. Um, you know, for example, when Olga Korolenko's character walks in, she knows she's wearing orange and there's the whole four elements aspect of this movie, you know, and orange and fire is very much what created her. If you look at this movie, they are telling you the entire movie, it's about water. The aqua colors are all over the place, all over MI6 headquarters throughout the movie. And every time they show a liquid in this movie, it is shot to look as beautiful as you've ever seen liquids look on screen in the entirety of film history. So it's a very clever movie in that respect. And I love a lot of moments. There's so many character moments I carry with me, you know, just like moments between Bond and Camille, um, moments between him and M, where like I will like underline these as like this is genius. Like they are finding organic character growth and character moments throughout the movie. I just find the overall package is kind of shaky. So it's a movie with value for me, but at the same time, it's one I can never a hundred percent love. It'll always be kind of like that. When I'm ranking the Craigs, it's mm -hmm. not going to be up at the top. So your purview matches the camera, which is a bit shaky, is what you're saying. It really does. Yeah. It's like I will sit there and watch it and just be like <laughs> nice, <laughs> in love with a moment. And then yeah. I'll follow it with like, Ugh, oh, that, that was a weird choice. But Cam, as you were describing this, and this is a question for both of you, do you find that previous Bond films, even going back and watching it and seeing the subsequent Craig films, can filter, even sometimes taint your perception of these. For example, with Quantum of Solace, I thought it looked, to your, to your point, beautiful, sumptuous. Skyfall was good, Spectre, not so much. And then what I'm saying is, I think there's a lack of consistency. And for some reason, I feel I'm, like I'm getting the same Daniel Craig James Bond from Casino Royale to Quantum of Solace. They both have that brooding, damage good type aspect. As soon as you meet Skyfall, it tends to crumble. Spectre, I, I feel like he was just moving through it. And No Time to Die, you got these mom-dad soliloquies going up and down. 
So it was really hard for me to grapple with the character. I go back to Quantum now to resuscitate the James Bond I fell in love with in Casino. Yeah, and this was the first time they'd ever really tried to tell a multi-film emotional arc for Bond. And I feel like they had that aspect right in Quantum. Uh, and I think they second-guessed themselves a lot because the movie was not as received as warmly as Casino Royale. But I, I do think they were on the right track. And I think this movie works well, at least in terms of the character carrying from movie to movie. And I do agree with you. When you get to those, um, especially like Spectre, you're kind of like, I don't really know where Bond is at now, whereas I really know where he's at in this movie. Well, it's an absolute through line between Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace. It's the same character in the next chapter of his life dealing with the next problem he had on his next mission. Come Skyfall, I, I think he's just... He's a Bond. I think he loses a lot of Craig's identity by the time Skyfall rolls in, unfortunately. It's also a lot of the, you're too old, Bond, you've lost a step. And it's like, wait, didn't this guy just become James Bond? <laughs> um, I suppose, for me... In terms of quantum, I've definitely warmed up to it over the years. I don't want to throw it in the trash like Mathis. Uh, <laughs> I I love a lot of it. And it's actually interesting listening to both David, yourself and Cam talking about moments of this really jump out to you. And you could, and David, you said you could jump into it at any point. And Cam said there's moments that really jump out at you. I had the same experience. I watched it about three times in the last month, just with all the interviews we've been doing for the film and everything. So I've been sort of drilling down into it in my head and trying to figure out what I liked and what I didn't like. Overall, what I didn't like is it doesn't feel like a complete piece of work. There's great stuff to it. There's some great acting. There's some great action. There's some interesting visuals, some interesting characters. I just don't think it's a cohesive unit when it's brought together at the end. But it doesn't mean I can't look at it and go, look at all this great stuff here. This is really cool. But when you get down to sort of saying, is this a great film? I go, it's almost there. I mean, I'm not hearing. You're making my job very easy. I, I came on here fully <laughs> thinking. I mean, they even warned me ahead of time in the green room. You know, you're going to be a punching bag. Here are the Band-Aids and the South. I don't need any of that because you guys really appreciate this. But this is what I'm seeing. I'm seeing people you know, say, you know, oh, it's such an underdog and it's it, at the bottom of the ranks. I bet you if you took some sort of accurate poll of the Bond community, this is probably in the top three growers of the entire franchise because people also see certain things like Camille and Bond are so similar. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean like the Michelle Yao, Pierce Brosnan similar, they can both fight and they're pithy. I mean, they're both going through a revenge story. They both are seeking something to which they find a bit of solace. Uh, the the establishment in this film is so realistic. You know, you talk about people using the, um, you know, using obviously the environment as a mask potentially, but underneath is all the grimy political nature. The fact that they can topple governments and take over governments, and the government sometimes is the evil entity. This is not the the layer where someone wants to build something in space. So I understand it's not that gooey cheese pizza. And by the way, that in and of itself can turn people off. But I think we've gotten so used to, and I hate this term, the Craig era being a little bit more realistic to the point where, for goodness sakes, he has a child. Don't do this to me. Um, I think we're a little <laughs> bit more open to a film like Quantum of Solace. We go back and go, what did I dislike about this? This isn't that bad. 
Well, I, you get what they were doing with this film or what they were trying to do. When you look at some of the later ones, I think Spectre is the one that really rubs me the wrong way. I just don't know what they were after. I don't know what the end goal was, apart from making it look very yellow. <laughs> Job well done, then. Job yes. well done. Nailed Back it. of the net. Well done. Um, <laughs> I will say, just, and I'll get into this, dig into it a little more in the dislike section. The thing that, I, that sort of bumps me on this film overall is I feel like Bond is on this revenge mission. He's dealing with betrayal and overcoming grief and loss. It's all there. The subtext is there. I just don't like how it's plotted together. And I feel a lot of the time Bond is very reactive instead of proactive. Uh, he sort of walks into stuff. It's like, oh, there's yeah. Camille. I guess I'll just go to the next scene now. Yeah, and the movie sets up this whole Vesper's boyfriend thing, but it doesn't really feel like it's that interested in that whatsoever. Um because that could have been like a real launching off point for what the movie is. And I think pro I can guarantee you when I walked out of Quantum, or uh, not out of Quantum, out of Casino Royale, I should say, that's what I thought the next one would be about. And um, yeah. the fact they kind of discard that and introduce a villain that, you know, the Bond franchise has famously jumped on popular trends at the time, right? Like it's go back throughout the history of the franchise. It's very common. You know, we've mentioned Moonraker, Star Wars is all over that movie. This one was the one that was very Jason Bourne. Bourne may have influenced Casino Royale, but I remember like at the time it was like they are trying to make a Bourne movie. And, you know, you look at the quick cut action and everything in this one. And um, at the time I held that against the movie, whereas now I look at it more as a feature of the movie. It's like, oh, that was our like Jason Bourne Bond movie. That's kind of fun. And then we moved on to something completely different, which was a Dark Knight Bond movie. <laughs> but like, you know, with this one, I, I do wonder how much people have trouble warming to it because of the villain plot of the movie. Whereas like Le Chiffre, people really love that character. And when you get to the very stripped down, almost like Bourne universe villains in this one, you know, with Dominic Green, just the, you know, in environmentalist who is planning to hoard water or the general whose main thing is being a rapist. It's very like dark real world kind of stuff that I think at least for some, they struggle to connect to a Bond adventure when that's kind of your primary antagonist. They like things that are maybe a little bit, not necessarily cartoonish, but just a little more heightened and fun, I suppose. I would agree with that. I think the other thing is too, with Le Chiffre and Bond in Casino Royale, you had an incredible and equal tete-a-tete -tete from an intelligence standpoint, from uh, wit, you know, from the prowess of each of the men on what they were trying to do on their own mission. Um, with Dominic Green, you fall down on that a little bit. Some of his lines are hard to understand. He seems meek. He seems a little like disingenuine. But more importantly, the the go-betweens, the little like riffs that they have in between each other fall a little flat sometimes. And I would admit that with this film. It's one of the things that sometimes I dislike. He gives a hell of a stare, though. There's that scene in the back of the limo where he just stares out the window. I'm like, that may be the funniest moment in the entire movie. He's got the eyes. Yep. The eyes. It's the moment uh, Joan Tosca when he sees Bond for me that that he just like like just stares across the room like oh my god it's Bond <laughs> <Yeah>. oh no, <laughs> um, but let's talk about stuff that we like and it sounds like there's a lot of it. David, you're our guest. You up you're up first. Something you liked you want to sort of focus on talk about. You know I'll focus on just because it's me um, the style of the film. 
Um, we talked about obviously the way it was shot, the way it looks, um, you know, even even the introduction to each location with the beautiful fonts that kind of match the location. But I have to gravitate to Bond himself. I mean, they put him in very Steve McQueen like outfits. And if you talk to the uh, the designers of the film, you know, Luis Frogley, they specifically made him look like a military man on the run. And so everything fits perfectly, but it's not too tight like you get in Skyfall. Inspector, you've got traditional Harrington jackets, even though it's Tom Ford, so it's not too traditional. You've got Levi's jeans. You've got Chucka boots. These are the these are the staples of a 1950s, 1960s spy. And so they brought that back for James Bond, even the way these Tom Ford suits fit. If you look at the fit of Quantum of Solace suits and even his tuxedo, you'll notice that it's so much looser and more relaxed than in the recent movies where some of it looks like it was spray painted. So I actually have nominated and talked about this as being the number one, yes, people, over Goldfinger, the number one James Bond sartorial style pick of the entire franchise. As an individual, you just wanted to own every look. So I, I take that as the number one thing for me. Well, like, look at the poster they chose of just like him and Camille just walking the desert. It looks like yeah. it could be a like a style advertisement. They knew Absolutely. what the strength was. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I know that's a very one dimensional first world discussion point to grapple with when I can talk about so many things. But to me, his style and the way he portrays who he is through that style is why I think this is one of the best portrayals that Craig has in any of the Bond films, because he's that badass, cool, Connery, Panther-like, walk, suave guy that says and does everything just right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and at this point, too, it's like you get to watch just through the performance of Craig melting down while wearing kind of the trappings of Bond. So you're seeing the visual look that you immediately associate with the character, but you're allowing kind of that window through just Craig's performance to see how it's like a man breaking down, even though he is made to look so glamorous. Exactly. Well, I, I was going to, I usually refer to Cam at this bit, but my like actually dovetails beautifully off David's. You mentioned the sort of 60s look of a spy. This is nice to see a James Bond film where he's being a spy. It's one of my top favorite things about it, especially like the Tosca stuff where he's actually outsmarting quantum he's using their technology against them he's working basically undercover he's infiltrating their meeting it's just nice to see because there's a lot of bomb films that go by as as you know i'm going to use air quotes as well like david did spy films when there's barely any spy work whatsoever it's a great point yeah and that um opera sequence i think is the highlight of the movie i think that is the best scene that quantum achieves and it's beautiful looking um, the escape I'm not as crazy about with the cross-cutting, but in terms of the like actual exposing the quantum agents, like we'd never seen really anything like it. It felt like an entirely new concept introduced into a Bond movie, and it's pulled off just masterfully. I think it's like a if you go through the Craig era and pick out the best moments, it's making a top 10. Absolutely. There's a wonderful video on YouTube, um, I think by the Film Speak chaps, and they talk about the Tosca sequence and the actual like, metaphorical connection between Tosca and what Bond is going through at that time. Uh, we'll put some links in the show notes below because it's actually a really wonderful discussion. And uh, it was picked specifically. It wasn't just a random opera choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting 
much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right, as you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? The Enforcer and Muscle Beach Party episodes are live and tune in in December. It's going to be plenty of festive fun as we celebrate the holidays Spy Hard style. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true Spy Hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Um, but Cam, what about you? Something you wanted to talk about? Um, I want to reference uh, Camille, who I think, like, at the time, it was almost a no-win assignment to follow up Vesper. And I do remember, you know, reviews taking issue with Camille and Olga Kurylenko's performance. I would say it has aged very well. And I think there's something really interesting about a character who is going through a journey that, you know, parallels Bonds, like David mentioned, but one where, like, she gets that moment of killing Medrano, and we see kind of how empty it is. It is not like a big, flashy, exciting death sequence. It's very brutal. And it ultimately results in her being, you know, surrounded by fire and Bond for a moment going to take a mercy shot on her. Like there is a real like torment and just emotional power to that character's story. And I think Olga Karolinko carries it throughout. I think the character is always interesting when she's on screen. She's capable in the action. But what it means to the larger picture of the movie, I think, really works because Bond as a character is, especially in the Craig era, very impenetrable, although even before that, really, where you don't get to read, you have to just kind of read through Craig's eyes a lot of the time, but he's a very kind of stoic character. Whereas going through Camille, she's getting to mirror everything he's going through, but we can actually read through a more expressive character. And I love you know, that at the end, she basically says, you know, your prison's in here. It is not a big romance. It's just two people going through the same thing and um, engaging in, I guess, <laughs> destruction by the end. But uh, I think this is a really strong character and one who wasn't given her due in the day. I, I find it hard to quibble with that. She's one of my likes as well. I, David, you mentioned the, the connection between Brosnan and, and, and Wei Lin. And I was going to make that connection, um, but not in sort of the, the superficial way that you, you, you pointed out being a superficial way as well. But I think the parallels of their story is is really quite interesting and the way they do it is very interesting and the other thing that jumps out to me about Camille and Bond is they're not romantic that kiss at the end is is almost a pity kiss i i always take it as like it's you know, a stolen you, you're kiss. In, yeah exactly and so it's she she knows he's in trouble upstairs and he's still working through it and it's like well good luck see you out there whereas at the end of tomorrow never dies that's one of my biggest gripes of that film is what they do with waylin at the end i think she should have had a much better ending there but yes i think this is this is like the um the redemption of the waylin character in a sense through the lens of a different character this is how she should have been treated and i think it's wonderfully done and uh, olga kalienko is fantastic anyway yeah and i think you know she helps him with redemption as opposed to bond rescuing her in the sense that she really makes him realize that the revenge path that he is on is not going to get him anywhere. 
I mean, he has that aha moment when they discover, obviously, the water being reserved and dammed up and, and the explosions um, when they come out of the plane. And even the discussion that he's foiled her plans. You know, everything he's doing in the sight of revenge isn't getting anywhere. Even when he says in the beginning, you know, I'm doing this for duty. And she and M says, you're blinded by revenge. That's true. That's the whole two thirds of this movie is blinded by revenge. And then once he has his focus and he understands that he's got to do something bigger, like she shows him, that's when he becomes the bond that we know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the way that, um, you know, her story dovetails into him not killing, um, you know, Vesper's boyfriend at the end of the movie is I think I think if the movie could breathe a little more, maybe with a, you know, if it had another pass on the script or something, they really could have tied those elements together in a way where it was much more maybe that emotional catharsis that maybe audiences were looking for at the time. But I do think the elements are there and I give them a lot of credit for trying to work those things in because they didn't have to. They could have sent after Casino Royale, hey, Bond standing there with the gun saying, Bond, James Bond, boom, the next movie, big adventure. Let's go. I'm just going to apologize for you in the future, Cam. Um, there's a helicopter circling over my house currently. Oh, wow. Is that um, Alfonso Cuaron? <laughs> <laughs> One would hope. Wow. Um, that's, a, that's a callback. Um, before I move on to dislikes, I want to just make a shout out to... Mr. Daniel Craig himself. I think this film hinges on, and most Bond films do, James Bond himself. I think he feels more confident in this film. I think he's a bit leaner, which I actually prefer that sort of look for him. Uh, that, that sort of bulky guy coming out of the ocean was, is a great gif. <laughs> but um, I, I'm not sure it makes sense for a, an MI6 agent to be a, a tank, personally. But yeah, I think he, he knows... He, obviously, he had a bad hand dealt to him with this film, with the script and things like that. So I think he's doing exactly the best he can with it. And where he can put his all in with like the action sequences, the physicality, it's all there. He's improved from Casino Royale, and it's hard to think that's possible. Yeah, and he was injured, I think, three times on this production as well. Um, one was actually, I think, pretty bad cut across his face that required stitches. So like, he definitely gave his all, but boy... This is like a real movie star performance. And we didn't know that Daniel Craig could be a movie star when Casino Royale came out. There was a lot of uncertainty, obviously. But at this point, like this is a very confident performer on screen. Absolutely. Well, I think now it's time to uh, tackle David's least uh, favorite part of the show, which is dislikes. Sorry, sir. <laughs> uh, and I'm out. And, and he's, well, thank you for coming. And that was David, the Bond experience of risky. Um <laughs> play the music yeah. but uh well you are the guest david you have to go first and i know even you said this isn't a perfect film so is there a criticism that you can make now about the film i mean it's the one i'm happy to say that i've consistently grappled with which is the song you know i i love a good bond song to connect i also love when a song connects the film together like you hear it you know up here even no time to die with all its faults um utilizes the song very nicely during the film itself I, it's just to me it's a mishmash um i love how jack white i think bragged you know just like um sam smith bragged you know how fast he did it you know it was one take <laughs> it's like good for you but now all these years later if you watch the documentary and you're interviewing the director soon 
uh, he says, I get it, you know, but uh, hey, Prince loved it. So yay for me. Prince is, Prince is a pretty eclectic guy. So good for you. Um, me as a Bond fan, I do not listen to the song when I'm listening to Bond music. If I'm out, you know, bombing around town, I just will skip it or not even have it on the playlist at all. It's my major, it's my biggest complaint, even beyond editing. Because I, I, I do wish there were parts that were edited differently, some longer, some maybe even shorter, like the airplane helicopter thing. Um, I just, it, it feels a little bit long in the tooth. It feels a little bit misplaced. Like, okay, I get it. You're doing earth, you're doing fire, you're doing wind, and you're doing water. You needed air. Is this where you had to go? But, right. um, but yeah, if I had to choose one as the big ouch, it would be the song. Would you say, uh, of all the Bond songs, this is your? I, I, people don't like saying least and most favorite, that sort of thing. But is it definitely one of the ones that's on your bottom five? Should we say that? It's in my bottom one. Wow. Oh wow, that's it. It's my bottom one. Wow. So okay. there's you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> it's it's bad for me. Wait, wait, wait. Lani Hall, never say never again. Or Jack White, Alicia Keys, Another Way to Die. Which one are you picking? Never say never again every every day. Oh, and, wow. And twice on Tuesday. That's amazing. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> With the bird noises. <laughs> uh, I didn't think you'd be singing twice in this episode. This is delightful. Let's keep it, let's keep it going. You can sing the outro. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. It's also notable to me, though. You know, you talk about the song. and The song, I don't hate it, but it is not a favorite and i sing me it's... a couple words or even just say a couple words for me um a holster well, in the razor a goat's in the race a monkey chase the weasel you don't know <laughs> that that could be the words it's true uh it also sounds kind of unfinished it almost sounds like a demo which i know was kind of the indie yeah. rock approach but yeah. when you're coming off the chris cornell one and i know that there's people who didn't care for that one but it sounds like a very like kind of professionally produced Bond song. Whereas this one does feel a little bit like scraps. And also the pairing of Alicia Keys and Jack White is the sort of thing on paper. They're like, oh my God, home run. And then when you actually hear it together, you're like, uh, not really great. I would have rather just had him write a song for Alicia Keys. That might've been good. Um, to me, the opening too, it's like, this was one where the credits were done by MK12 as opposed to Daniel Klein, uh, Kleinman. And... I remember in the theater being very excited for those opening credits and being like, oh, those are a little underwhelming. And then we'd get back to glory once again with Skyfall. I um, I quite like the song. <laughs> Own it, Scott. I'm, Own it. I'm sorry. Do it. No, I'm that's sorry. great. I envy I, you. I do. I, I will preface by saying I don't like the sort of <laughs> thing they do towards the end of the song. I don't get that. Like they're scatting at one point. It's a bit strange. I'm singing on the episode now. This isn't sing along yeah. episode, everyone. Skip it about the jib boo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I I love the. Uh, I went on record at Casino Royale episode. I love Chris Cornell anyway. Soundgarden. It, Chris Cornell is my man. Uh, yeah, rest in peace. I mm. I won't get into that. But I like the idea of c continuing this rock style of Bond song. I liked that concept. And you got Jack White. I was like, oh yeah, let's do it. Alicia Keys. She can sing. Great. Bring her on board. 
And you get some good stuff in the song. I think the guitar riff is really memorable for me. I'm a guitarist, so it's like I, I pick it apart musically. There's a lot of interesting stuff in the song. But I understand why it annoys people. If I had my choice now, I'd rather it just been Jack White. I also wonder, like, you know, for David, like, this is a more aggressive, angry Bond film. Should they have gone with maybe something a little more aggressive sounding? Because the Jack White, Alicia Keys thing is kind of grungy poppy. Or do they do something like what Shirley Bassey and David Arnold put together? Which if you yeah. watch that on YouTube, which is amazing, they put it over the same, you know, uh, sequence and it looks and sounds perfect. I mean, it connects in every way. So do you, you hearken back to something more traditional because everything that I've heard from the designers to the set designers, to the costume designers, they went for a more traditional, going almost back to like Ken Adams, Connery type of aspect. So do you throw everybody and say, we're going we're gonna to surround this very updated story and situation, but with something very traditional and tropey? I would have loved that. Wish list, never going to happen. It's kind of like the Katie Lang Surrender. It's like the, the great Lost Bond song. Yes. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Switch them. Switch them. Um, I think we could talk about the song for a while, but I'm going to move us on. Cam, a dislike from you. So there's like two I, I think I'm going to mention, and one we've already talked about, so we'll just start with that, which is the action sequences for me just don't work. And that they are trying to do born propulsive action, but when you look at the way that Paul Greengrass staged his action... There's a very clear sense of geography, and he's doing that cinema verite thing where it's, you know, a moving, like, steady cam or handheld cam throughout the sequences, mm-hmm. and the it feels propulsive. When you watch those car chases in Born Supremacy or Ultimatum, you know where you are, and they are just barreling you through the action. Whereas here, really focusing on it on my rewatch for this episode, as well as for the interview, um, it's a lot of actually very clean camera shots that are being edited very fast where you start to lose track of where you are there's the boat chase in this movie i have no idea where they're going in those boats at any time and can one of you explain how does the grappling hook thing work at the end of the boat chase so the way i saw it is it's basically he takes the hook and as soon as there's a little bit of tautness it pulls it down through the inertia okay it's almost like a, a cat or, uh, cantilever. Okay. I'll take your word for it because, yeah. yeah I, that, you that you can't see my lower point. waist, but I'm tap dancing underneath my desk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can see the sweat on your brow there. It's, uh, yeah. And the movie has <laughs> lo- moments like that where I just feel lost in the action. Even in like a very small moment, it looks like M gets shot during the... Uh, yes. Yeah, the Mr. Yes. White escape. And so like bits like that... I look at this movie, it has so many incredibly staged stunt sequences, like the pulley system, I think is one of the most genius, you know, concepts for an action scene, but it's such like a editing mess that I find it very frustrating. Um, The only time it really works for me is the fight in the hotel room where he, you know, ultimately stabs the guy and like just some of the, yeah, some of the close quarters stuff I find is a little more effective, but when it comes to like the big set pieces, it just doesn't really work for me. I will take you to task ever so slightly, Cam. Mm. Are you saying that is the action set pieces themselves or the editing of said action set piece? It's the editing. Yeah. Right. 
Okay, because I, I would agree with you in that sense, but I don't think the set pieces they put together were shot incorrectly or anything like that. No. And we did take these questions to the, the cinematographer, and he spoke about how he shot it compared to how it was edited almost night and day. So it's a very interesting discussion, that. But, Cam, you said you had a, diff- uh, a second one? Yeah, the character of Fields. I just never liked yeah. this character. Yeah, Gemma Arterton, who, you know, has said since she kind of regrets taking this role. There's just nothing to the character. And you can look at, like, the Solange character in Casino Royale, who was very much like the secondary female character. There was more there. You had a sense of who they were as an individual. I really don't know what's going on with Fields in this movie. Like, it's a almost, like, just kind of tossed off, secondary kind of love interest character that just... I don't even know what to make of her. Like, she's basically there to die to be in the Goldfinger shot. That's it. She's the sacrificial lamb. Absolutely. I think that they they try to put a little bit more spunk behind her um, to give her that tenacity, you know, the the moxie aspect to it. But, I mean, you could see it coming from a mile wide, you know, with the trench coat on, that she's going to be the sacrificial lamb. It's like, check, trope. Got it. Yeah. I think... um... Gemma definitely drew the short straw with this film. Although, I, I, and I will pivot off of yours a little bit, Cam. I completely agree. I, I think it's a real shame because if you're going to go for this sort of callback with the, the, the Goldfinger classic, make it about oil and tying it into the film, make it feel like a loss, like a character that we liked. They had such a short amount of time in Goldfinger and yet we felt that loss. Yeah. We Basically, it was just another conquest for 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 uh, Daniel in this film. Uh, and we didn't really feel the loss of Strawberry Fields dying. Yeah. It's just a, it's just a shot from the film. So I completely understand Gemma, but I would also point out that um, I think it's a real shame with how Felix is dealt with in this film as well. I think he, he really just is almost there in name only. The David Harbour character gets a lot more time than Felix does. David Harbour is both great and wasted. Like, you know that, like, now, if they brought David Harbour into a Bond movie, it would be incredible, and they'd give him so much more to do. But he brings so much to so little screen time in this movie. See, but I... I, So I have to counter this. I actually love the Felix in this movie. And I Mm. think it's very similar in the sense to the Casino Royale Felix that he is so subdued. And to me, Felix is always supposed to be surround sound. Felix is not supposed to be like No Time to Die, where it's a centerpiece and his death means a lot. It's supposed to be this surround sound moment. So the fact that Felix is clearly straddling the lines between what the Americans want and what his good friend Bond wants and which one does he support and ultimately does the right thing. And he's still cooler than school. I think the the Felix that we see, and again, I'm making comparatives, in No Time to Die, he's a little bit more, you know, wacky. Uh, school dad, you know, Felix, I got a family, James, you know, hey, let's play some games and, you know, come on back, you know, and it's like, no, no, this should be like, this guy is cool. He's smoky voice, you know, he's just sitting down with his arm draped around there and, you know, move your ass, James. I mean, those type of things. I think those are some of the best moments and lines between the two characters. Candy. I also kind of like that it establishes his moral line. Because throughout the movie, there's a lot of stuff about, you know, dirty dealings. The CIA working with people like Dominic Green. Um, We have, I think, M acknowledging that sometimes, you know, things can become very gray in their dealings. I like that just through those scenes with, um, you know, Felix. And there's not a lot of Felix in this movie. You get a sense as to what he stands for, 
And so it makes sense going forward. We can, you know, feed into that when we're bringing him back for No Time to Die. I suppose then for my dislike, the one I wanted to bring up, which it straddles the line for me between dislike and like, and that is uh, Dominic Green. Yeah. I like the fact that it's a different kind of Bond villain. It's not a megalomaniacal guy that's got, you know, machinations to take over the moon. Um, it, it's nothing like that. I, it, it's just a bloke who wants to make a ton of money through very skeezy acts. We can all understand that. It, the world around us is full of them. Um, and I understand that. And I think that's actually a really interesting sort of villain to dig into. Unfortunately, he's in the wrong film. They obviously didn't get many passes at the script, so there's dialogue that feels weird. David, you mentioned you can't even hear him sometimes. It's some strange choices there. But I also like the fact that he tries to take on Bond in a fight. That's really cool to see. Badly. Not gonna, gonna, <laughs> badly. It doesn't end well. <laughs> but like, Stupid you give acts. him credit for being like, yeah, have a try. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I, I both dislike what they do with him and like what they do with him. It's weird. That makes sense. Yeah, I like that he's sort of wearing the like vacation wardrobe like most of the movie like he's been hanging out in the sun i i think matthew elmerich i remember when he was cast that was actually really exciting because he'd been the star of um the diving bell and the butterfly which was a terrific movie um it felt like they kind of underwrote his character i i guess i like it for like the weird little moments because that's one of the things i think as bond fans we all look for is those odd little moments that we can just like kind of have fun with and the way he's introduced to sitting there like stamping like a piece of paper and i'm like i have no yeah, what idea what is that paper by the way like what is that about who knows who knows but it's wonderful <laughs> um the stare which we've mentioned and just like kind of the screaming during the fight like there's bits and pieces to hang on to but like I, it feels like they didn't find a really compelling hook for the character it's like a good performance on a character that you're like could have been more and um i always found like his death is a little unsatisfying like th there's no big comeuppance which i kind of like in bond movies it's a very like poetic ending but it's one that always leaves me a little bit deflated um and i think i've come to like him more because i i don't like the general madrano character i just find that character is so unbelievably unpleasant in the movie that i keep going you know dominic you're not so bad <laughs> yeah this land is worthless um yeah i you know i have to tell you with dominic green what I find lacks is my favorite bad guys, like take Silva from Skyfall. They have these wonderful centerpiece moments. They could be centerpiece action moments. Uh, usually it's dialogue though. You know, the wonderful, you know, my grandmother had an island, boink, 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 the two rats standing. So this lacks that. He really doesn't have any of those quotable, you know, centerpiece moments. So all you have is his acting and he's, other than the screaming, um, he is kind of one note and a little bit flat in most of these things. Add to the fact that at least the American audience um, complained that it's hard to understand him when he's describing what he did to his piano teacher. You know, I took an iron and, 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 and I defy anybody to say <laughs> what he did with that iron. I guess he just waved it in the air and left you all hanging. But it, all those types of things, I think, leaves this sort of a B minus uh, bad guy. What do you think his defining moment is in the movie? Like, does he have one that you'd point to and say, like, because you mentioned the Silva, you know, rat speech. Like, it doesn't have to be a big, memorable one, but, like, does he even have one? Or is he kind of like a Christatos where you're like, um, huh. 
the most memorable one for me, and maybe we can go around, but the, the, the most memorable one for me was when they're at the, uh, the Green Party and he's talking to Camille and Bond and he's describing, you know, all the different aspects and she's threatening him. And he talks about, you know, damaged goods and hard to control. It's, it's almost like taunting. And I mm. think that's a nice, wonderful moment that feels very Bond villainous. But it, I'm hard pressed to grab onto another one. Yeah, it's like I like when he like kind of shoves her against the railing and the railing cracks. Like it shows you kind of the evil of this character that he tries to keep kind of buried. Um, but yeah, there's not a big showy one. I feel like if you ask a lot of fans, they're going to point to him swinging the axe and screaming at the end of the movie. That, that's how I'm seeing us out at the end of the episode, to be fair. So, uh, <laughs> fair. Yeah, perfectly reasonable. Well, I think now before we get to the knock list, just uh, we'll look at any final notes we have. David, before we get there, do you have anything else you want to bring up about the film? You know, just, I mean, we may have hinted to this, but I'll, I'll say it overtly. There is, is something within the Bond community when you have an underdog or, you know, sort of a bullied film that people take up arms. Cam, you know, you mentioned A View to a Kill. I know a lot of people that will defend View to a Kill to a bloody pulp. And I think it's kind of fun to do that because it does create positive conversations. But we should all have those uh, bullied Bond films that we stand up for. And darn it, I've accepted fully Quantum of Solace for my film. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, we all have those Bond movies that we champion. I will go to my grave, the big defender of Thunderball. And a oh. lot of people don't like Thunderball. Who are these people? Right. I want their address. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I knew there was something I liked about you. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's it's too much water for me. Um, okay, um, Cam, what about you? Um, yeah, I had a couple things I'll mention. Uh, I like the moment where Bond pushes the guy off the roof after the opera escape. Um, it's very Spy Who Loved Me with like uh, yep. dangling the guy over. Um, I also like the bike flip moment where he flips the guy off the motorcycle. Like there's like little action beats in the movie that are really cool. It's like the extended sequences that don't work for me. But when they come up with a cool Bond moment, this movie has them. There's also like the shot in this movie that is bizarre. And I remember it was hotly um, debated at the time. And it's the weird crotch shot of the woman who works in the hotel after Madrano has attacked her. And uh, it's basically she's getting up to you know escape basically and the camera just does this close-up up her skirt cuts you know like the the face of the actress off it's just this weird close-up and it's it's obvious why it's there to show that she's wearing underwear and that a sexual assault did not actually take place but i remember seeing that in the theater and the whole audience went whoa when that happened and even to this day i find it incredibly strange incredibly strange i can't say i ever noticed oh yeah really I, yeah, oh yeah that, it's been whole discussions on threads and things like that and uh, you know, the dress itself. And it, it's, it is strange because if they had something that was composited behind there, and so she was out of focus and she moved to see him crawling across the bed, but they don't utilize it like that. It's almost like it exists, Cam, to your point, to itself. Yeah, it's, I think, just a weird shot. And I, I almost wonder if it's like an insert because audiences weren't clear after they shot the movie initially. I have no idea, but it always is very jarring every time I watch the movie. It's a it's a quantum of crotch is what you get. It's uh, <laughs> needs to be said. Yes, and uh, just my last little note, we have not mentioned him, Elvis the henchman. Ah. I like his sad little smile at the opera. That part's kind of fun, but this was not 
if you're going to, I think, go low-key on your main villain, you at least want a memorable henchman. And unfortunately, Elvis is also a little too low-key. Can I tell you something? That is all the reasons that you're painting right now. The <laughs> Dominic Green, the henchman, are all the reasons why this is Bond's movie. Because it's almost like he has the only spotlight. You know, Camille's got some strength. You said this is not the Felix that you like. You have to go to Bond to really be satiated in this movie. Love it. You will go to bat for anyone in this film, won't you? <laughs> I'm trying. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Call me Mark Forrester. <laughs> Um, I had a couple of notes and a couple of questions. I just want to give a shout out, firstly, to Elvis uh, as a man who's also follically challenged. Mm. Um, I see a lot in him. Uh, I wish I knew who's his toupee maker. Maybe I'll go see them. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. I, it, it makes me sad whenever I see Elvis because I just see my future. <laughs> Moving on from Elvis, uh, shout out to the sweeping dude. That famous meme, of course. Yep. Uh, right up there with the pissing dog in the junk canoe. It's, uh, I don't know how that made it past the dailies, but it's immortalized in Bond history now. You had one job. One job. <laughs> <laughs> why, why would you sweep a dock anyway? Like, just go meta with it. It's just going to be dirty. It's a dock. <laughs> I have no idea. Have you ever seen anyone just sweeping a dock? I don't. I don't no. think I have. I've spent a lot of time at docks. Usually they hose them off, don't they? Well, you live by the sea, Cam. I know. I should know this, but I really don't. I don't hang out the docks <laughs> enough, apparently. Well, there you go. <laughs> Research. Yeah. 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 Um, I had two questions. Firstly, and, and, and I think it's actually very important that we've got you here for this one, David, because outside of the sort of, I'll use the sartorial side of it, the word you use there, but also just like in terms of like a bond fandom and the bond debate and, and being part of the discourse i think you're very important to uh, what people think and you know your opinions mean a lot to a lot of people and so one thing i hear about online with this film is the gun barrel i personally personally couldn't care i don't care if it's at the start i don't care if it's at the end i don't even care if it's in the film sorry guys it, it's not important to me but it's important to a lot of other people and so, Cam and David, I just want to sort of hear your thoughts on what you thought about it being at the end of the film. Do you care about it? And should it have been at the start? What are your thoughts? My answer is very political in the sense that I'm going to be of two minds. I certainly do not mind. I didn't even notice the first two times that I saw it, just to be frank. I'm not sitting there going like, gun barrel, gun barrel, gun barrel. There it is. Now I can like relax. Um, that being said, I don't know why they <laughs> didn't do the gun barrel. I mean, I know it's supposed to be like a continuation and things like that. And then you end it with the gun barrel. But um, it doesn't bother me. I don't keep myself up at night. It doesn't take away from the enjoyment of the movie at all. Yeah, like when I watched the start of this movie, the gun barrel wouldn't work. Because the whole point is to like zoom in that location, have the car kicking into gear as essentially the gunshot going off to start the movie. So it's like by design, the gun barrel, I think, makes more sense at the end. The question is more like, just from an Eon standpoint, like, why? Like, why did they not want the gun barrel there? Or why were they just like, yeah, okay, the hell with it. We'll just put it at the end. Um, I, I, have, I guess I have less issue, though, with this one than with the um, Skyfall one. So I'll say that. Fair enough. I, it's interesting that, like, I, I, I respect both your opinions, and you were both sort of mild on it. I, I know, is Skyfall at the end as well? I think that's right. Yeah, it is, yeah. 
Well, at least there's not a bullet coming at you through the gun barrel. True. I like that. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't like nice. the movie. I don't like yeah. the movie. But you like that. Why not? Wow. You're, so it, we're adding it to your list of things. You're not only a, a Quantum of Solace defender, but you're a Die Another Day defender. Well, and I love Tomorrow Never Dies. So I, there's a lot of people that don't like that either. So That one's, we, we like that one. Okay. We love that one. Okay. So yeah, and we're you're back. in good company there. We're, we're <laughs> back in the room. Last question, and we'll move on to the knock list. This film, we've spoken about it. It's a direct sequel in many ways. It's also its own film in many ways. But in terms of Bond, it's probably the closest we've had to a direct follow-up from the previous film. I think we all agree on that one. If there was another film you could pick in the Bond lineage that should have had a direct sequel. Oh, this is easy. I, I, I know what you're going to say. I probably set it up for being a very easy question. So maybe try and think of not that one. Oh, come on, Scott. <laughs> come on. Give me Anyways. something else. Uh, Repeat, uh, continue right. the question. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, I'm going to say On Her Majesty's Secret Service is the easy answer here. Yeah. But is there another one that you would have liked to have seen a little, like a follow-up on? Cam, I'll let you go first this time. Oh boy. Um hmm. I don't there's like the continuity aspects of the Bond movies don't really lend themselves as much to sequels. Um I would like to know, you know, how they actually got back to Earth and Jaws and everything got back to Earth and Moonraker. So maybe a <laughs> sequel where we actually see how Jaws on that uh flying chunk of uh space debris managed to land on Earth. Sign me up for that. Moonraker 2, Electric Boogaloo. All right, that's what we're getting. Yeah. David, any thoughts? Um, I would say uh, definitely No Time to Die. Right. Oh, uh, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Where Bond just like, oof, that was a close one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, he's, he's like, you know, King Kong swimming out to ocean or something like that at the end of a Godzilla film. You know, just right. all happy as a clam. It's the first shot of him standing up, dusting himself off. Like um, when, yeah. he, when he drops into the train car in Skyfall, it's the same shot. Yeah. Just going, he could literally yeah. say that, was... that that last missile nearly killed me. Like something pithy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it knocked the uh, nano blood right out of me. That's oh, well. Right. <laughs> well done, Q. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that, buddy. Well, um, yeah, I'd like to see that film too. Both good answers. And Honor Majesty's Secret Service, of course, would also be the perfect answer to that. But we're at. Our destination, folks. Do we throw Quantum of Solace into the bin or not? Cam, we have a guest this week. What is the knock list? What are we trying to do here? Yes, the knock list is our tortured acronym for Need to See Official Classics of the Spy Hearts podcast, where we're compiling the ultimate list of spy movies, the ones you would hand that list to people and say, you need to watch these spy movies. Of the Bond movies we've covered, which ones have made the knock list? I think Goldeneye, Goldfinger from Russia with Love and Dr. No, and Thunderball. And I believe You Only Live, Live Twice made it on in a very contested, heated debate that I don't agree with to this very day. I, I, I champion You Only Live Twice, <laughs> I'll just say it now. I can can you name a few that haven't made it? Uh, sure. Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not Enough, Die Another Day, Diamonds Are Forever, um, Casino Royale 67, Never Sin Ever Again. And uh, I think that's it, right? That's it. That's basically all we've done so far. There's plenty of other spy films that we've had on the list as well. So it's right. not just Bond. But um, but guests always get a vote. Uh, we all vote to go on the knocker. So, David, you are our guest. You get the first vote. Yes or no. 
is Quantum of Solace joining Casino Royale on the list of the greatest spy films of all time? Do I stay consistent to the last hour and 32 <laughs> minutes or do I just throw you for a loop and go, no, and then he, then you can go, he's batshite crazy. Um, <laughs> I'm so curious what you're going to do with this. I am absolutely going to put it on the knock list. I really do. And mostly because of an hour and 32 minutes of evidence. I mean, this was an outpouring of love and a demonstration of evidence that this grows on you over time. So if anything, people should go back to it and see it on repeated viewings because you're going to get the richness that we just talked about. Okay. So there's a vote for yes. You are keeping consistent and on brand. I like it, David. Very good. Cam, you're up next. This is the make or break vote, really. So uh, where are you going? Honestly, like I'm a mild no on this one. And I, I think it's because the the Bond movie I'm really taking into consideration with this vote is I think this movie is it has a lot of interesting elements, but I just find it messy with its storytelling. And by the way, an insult to Canadian uh, secret agents everywhere. Uh, I just have to say, as a Canadian, <laughs> deeply offended, deeply offended. Isn't that redundant? Sorry. Oh. Uh, <laughs> it is. It is. Yes. Uh, we love you guys. You're our hat. Come on. We love you. <laughs> we know we know but um you know they didn't need to rub it in is what i'm saying um but uh so like this one is like it's messy it has stuff i really like about it and like that's the case with a lot of bond movies but the one i keep you know going back to is tomorrow never dies which we felt didn't make the list because while we both really enjoy it, it has a lot of the stuff we like it doesn't really raise the the bar very much it's kind of delivering all the elements you love and like this one to me is trying more experimental things. It's not really a comparison in terms of what they're trying to do with Tomorrow Never Dies, but it's sort of like falling for me in terms of quality wise, a little below a Tomorrow Never Dies, where I appreciate what Four Stars doing, beautiful looking movie, but if I'm pulling out, you know, my top 10 Bond list of movies to watch, Quantum's probably not on the 10, whereas like Casino Royale, when we tackled that one, automatic top of the list. The 67 version, obviously. Clearly. And also the 1950s version from TV. <laughs> do, do, do. Yes. do, do, do. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, okay. It's, it's rare that this happens, that we have a three-way vote, and it's a yes and a no. So my vote actually means something, because usually I'm outvoted by this point, and I get to have a bit of fun with it. <laughs> okay, there's some serious pressure now. Do I vote for my boy Elvis? Do I, <laughs> do I stand up for the follically challenged of the world? Mm. Mm. it's a very tough no for me i think i've learned to love a lot about this film uh and i agree with a lot of points david said i, I don't think it, i needed convincing i think i walked into this knowing how i felt about the film um i there's for me there's too many wrinkles to to put it on the knock list i if i put this up against even the highly contested You Only Live Twice. I think that's a better film than this. I think that's a more complete film with less blemishes, despite some very obvious blemishes in that film. I would disagree with this, by the way. This Scott only speaks for himself right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, that's fine. That's fine, that's fine. Um, but yeah, I, I just... I, even Thunderball, a film I don't like, mm. is on the knock list. I voted for it because I was aware of, uh, of its power, of its majesty. I think you voted against um, it, actually. <laughs> Did I? Yeah, Whoopsie. you did. All right, I'll take that. I'll take that back. Sorry, everyone, and sorry everyone keeping track of me. You can hold me to an account online. But uh, okay, it's a no. I think there's 
a lot of good here. I think a couple of rewrites. We might be talking about this is in the top five, top ten Bond films of all time. But I think as it is now, it's just a bit too much mess for me. Can can I react? Yeah. You may. Is this thing no. on? Is this thing on? Of course you can. Of course you can. <laughs> it's like the McCarthy <laughs> error. It's like, yeah. um, <laughs> Your Honor, uh, I am really happy you vote both voted no, and let me explain why. I love the underdog status of this film. I think it adds to the charm. It allows people to have a unique and almost strange voice in supporting it. If this was another Casino Royale or Honor Majesty's Secret Service or Goldfinger, it would just be another classic that people sort of go to that need to prepare a gourmet meal around. This is something that you can go in and out of and really fly a flag to be proud that you're part of a unique group of individuals. So I'm I'm kind of happy that we we got to this place. And I I honestly think our takeaway from this, regardless of where we stood with the, the knock list and what have you, is that like this is an interesting movie with stuff worth diving into and not a Bond movie you can just dismiss and throw on the scrap pile the way that maybe people felt it should have been back in the day. There's a reason this movie keeps being reappraised and reconsidered. I I can't disagree with that, and I think it's a wonderful way to sort of finalize our discussion. It's one yes from Mr. Zaritsky and two no's from the Spyhards. And as such, the Quantum of Solace is not making the knock list. But don't worry, Daniel Craig, you've got Casino Royale on there so far. <sighs> David, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for gracing us with your presence. And I don't mean that in some sort of tongue-in-cheek kind of way because I, I said this to Calvin Dyson years ago. I think he joined us for, for Goldfinger yeah. uh, when we did it. Ages and ages and ages ago. And I, I said, I've looked to you long before we started doing Spy Hards as someone in the community that I, 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 I appreciate their opinion. I look to their thoughts as sort of a guide and as someone to consult on my thoughts on, on things, all things James Bond. And having you on the show, Calvin, uh, was a dream come true. And I've just achieved another dream. Uh, I've had Mr. David Zaritsky on the show. So I, and I've met you in person, of course, you know, we've done all this, but. I, I really appreciate what you do and the positivity that you share in the community, and I'm glad that you're here sharing it with us. Well, thank you so much. That is incredibly nice of you to say, and uh, the feeling is mutual. I mean, this has been a lot of fun. The time flew by as it does when you get some good people together. So thanks for having me on, and what a beautiful thing to say. Thank you. Now, Cam, you say something nice about me. Go. <laughs> Go. No. Well, you know what? I'm in a similar boat. You know, I was watching Bond Experience videos long before, long before um, we you know, talked about having you on to do quantum. So this was exciting for me as well. Just that I haven't been able to meet you in person and have those experiences yet. <laughs> but um, I think before we let you go, for those who don't know where to find you, where can people find you online, David? Yeah, so um, consistent of loving Quantum of Solace, so I'm also consistent of brand. Meaning if you look under the Bond experience on Instagram, on Twitter, God forbid, on Facebook, hmm. even worse, uh, but mostly YouTube. Just go to my YouTube channel, uh, look under the Bond Experience, and I usually have two minimum, possibly three videos go up a week, which is crazy. But there's always content to be had, and Instagram usually has a lot of great stories in there as well. Well, uh, we'll have links in the show notes below. Cam and I are both big fans. Uh, we'll have to find a way of infiltrating the show at some point to talk about something, something nefarious down the road. We'll have our Bond experience, I imagine. Let's do it. Ah. Well, yeah, again, David, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. 
Well, there you go, folks. That was our chat about 2008 Bond film, Quantum of Solace. Again, I want to thank Mr. David Zaritsky, The Bond Experience, for joining us on the show. I definitely suggest checking out his YouTube channel. Links are in the show notes below. Uh, we spoke about the interviews earlier on in the show, but Cam, let's just go through it again. What can the listeners expect over the next two weeks? Yes, we are going to be talking to Rufus Wright, who plays the Treasury Agent in Quantum of Solace. That will be landing this upcoming Friday. And of course, as Scott mentioned, he has several other interesting spy credits we can touch on. And next Tuesday, we will have an interview with Roberto Schaefer, the Director of Photography for Quantum of Solace, a very visually dynamic Bond film. So there is a lot to talk about there. And then we will close out next week with... A interview with Matt Whitecross, the director of the Sound of 007 documentary, which will end on that Friday. Yeah, it's a it's a veritable feast of Quantum of Solace and Bond over the next two weeks. Uh, we sort of fall into this pattern of doing a couple of weeks of interviews around our Bond discussions. Um, and we will keep that going where we can. Uh, we've got a couple of things lined up for Skyfall, which will be the next Bond film as well. So hopefully some exciting stuff happening there. But uh, there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to join in in the interviews over the next two weeks. Join in on the Bond fun. Rufus Wright, Roberto Schaefer, Matt Whitecross. A lot to listen, a lot to love. Uh, and if you love what you hear on the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H. A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, Cam, I want your hands on my skin. 